no one in my family is going to be conned by big battery. It'd be like taking a bungalow for a walk. I've hung around enough bloody guitar playing boys. The fifth beetle in this magic roundabout world. There's no robots. I'm not interested. If the 1950s could be doing this would be it. By law, you have to have them again. <laughs> it felt like a social realist Johnny Briggs. Hello, I'm Tim Worthington and welcome to another collection of highlights from Looks Familiar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about some of the things that they remember that nobody else ever seems to. In front of me right now, I've got a vinyl copy. To be honest with you, I'm not sure if it's ever even been on CD of Tracy Ullman's second album, You Caught Me Out. It wasn't as big a success as You Broke My Heart in 17 Places. Apparently, it only got to number 92, and the two singles from it didn't do that well either. There was the cover of Madness's My Girl as My Guy, which had Neil Kinnock in the video, and also sunglasses brackets to hide behind, which, you'll never guess what, she performed on top of the pops wearing a pair of retro zany sunglasses. When writer Joel Morris appeared on Looks Familiar, he wanted to talk about a very different kind of retro eyewear, or more specifically, a sort of demonstration disc that you got with them. When he bought a Viewmaster, it came with... I don't I didn't even know if it came... God, we had a Viewmaster, it must have been bought when I was very small. So I don't remember what came with it. Possibly we had a Rupert disc, so maybe early enough it would have been the Rupert, the puppet Rupert from TV. So that may be the one we had. But it came with a set, but it came also with a disc, a single disc that said, there are other things in this range. And I thought there was a standard, there was only one, because that's the one I had. And it had one picture from each of, say, eight reels as a way of saying, and the other things you can do is to go to these other wonderful worlds. Because Viewmaster was a 3D viewer, stereoscopic viewer, like a Victorian piece of technology, but a plastic version of it that you pulled a little hand and went, and it brought the next thing up from a reel of stereoscopic images. And it was great. But once you'd seen the Rupert one and been scared of Raggedy and flipped around it and read the story, then there was nothing to do. So I looked at the demonstration reel, and the demonstration reel had, God, oh, it seared into my mind. It's a bit like the images from the cursed video in The Ring, as in they've got this haunted quality because I only saw one image of them. There was a bullfight. There was a some Formula One cars. There was someone in a very narrow blue cave of stalactites in a helmet. Canadian mounted police, possibly. But I remember watching this and it wasn't a story. It was one image from each, but it said, you can buy more of these. And of course, I never did buy more of them because that was unthinkable that you'd ever have enough money to buy more Viewmaster reels. So I exhausted the thing that we had, which was... Was a, a reel of Rupert the Bear and then I looked at the demonstration reel again and again and again and again a single stereoscopic image of a bullfight again and again and again and this is partly about Viewmaster and partly about that particular 70s 80s boredom where you can't just get more of something that you reach the end of the one Super 8 film you've got so you watch it again because there's nothing else on but I got obsessed by the Viewmaster demonstration disc. I've looked up now and there's loads of them apparently. They're mainly about, annoyingly, about scenes of Alpine splendour and American landmarks and things. But this one was one of each and a variety of things. Yeah, there were loads because I've actually got here. I mean, I don't have a Viewmaster anymore, annoyingly, but I still have, as I mentioned last time Samira Ahmed was on, my Space 1999 discs. I appear to have Dusty, the 70s public information film Keep Britain Tidy character. Whoa. A lone Huckleberry Finn and Friends one. I don't know where the other two have gone. Sadly, I don't have what the other one that's actually written on the packet, because you just get packets with them to keep them in, which is the Waltons, the separation. Now, who would want a Viewmaster of the Waltons? Oh. And what I remember of it is, can you guess that's what so happened weird. in it? Grandma's old beau was coming to town. Well, there's a turn up for the books, but I have a demo disc in here. I've been trying to work Whoa. out what's on it, and so far I've picked out... Hold up to the light. Well, the things I can make out are, what appears to be Disney 
Disneyland because Disneyland had to be on there. Yeah. What looks like Mickey and Goofy falling through dimensions. <laughs> What's very clearly Zorro, it's sort of 50 Zorro, some nondescript drawn animation things. It's a kind of off-brand knockoff Pinocchio, which I assume was their own drawing of it. And also, a cowboy tied up in front of, you know, that old rope with a candle burning through it thing, and the thing about to fall yeah. down on him. There's one of them. Now, what was that candle from? That's Damocles. even weird. And the Waltons. Well, they'd have, you're right, it would be on-brand and off-brand stuff. So there would be a Disney in there, but there'd also be other stuff. And I think one of the discs you could, demo disc, was cartoon favourites or something which would be there'd be a, a, a top cat and a, and, a, and a mickey mouse and things in there our one was very much a something very specifically because they were made by gaff i think there's something very specifically your parents slides of an exotic holiday they had before they had you feel about these things because like, you forget this as well you only ever saw photographs in printed form or the television and there was something really weird about Viewmaster because it's like a slide or a computer screen and it's backlit so the colours are really vivid so you hold it up to the light and so they look like slides they look like uh, holiday slides like ectochrome holiday slides and the weird thing is when they did cartoons sometimes they did cartoons as drawings so I had a top cat that was 3D so it was they, I imagine they just done layers like a multiplane camera a Disney multiplane camera so that was quite satisfying but sometimes they'd make models of drawings like that slightly unreal way the Moomins cartoon was. So it was haunting and my brother always said it looked like it had really happened. (laughs) So the really scary thing was we had a Winnie the Pooh one that was Disney's Winnie the Pooh but instead of it being the cartoon that you knew, the fun Paul Winchell Tigger thing, they'd made models they'd made dioramas a bit like you might maybe they were from Disneyland I don't know they were dioramas of Pooh getting stuck in Rabbit's house but they weren't anything I'd ever seen they weren't the H. Shepherd illustrations they weren't the cartoon I knew they were this weird thing that you went physically this is somewhere and it had a sort of slightly haunting bagpuss models these are in a dusty cupboard somewhere someone made this weird looking Winnie the Pooh I was obsessed by and haunted by anything where you were staring at it for ages because you did because you only had this to look at you stared at a single image that was supposed to be a frame from a cartoon but a been made physically like how weird pepper pig toys are in that they're meant to be drawings they're not meant to have the eyes are on the wrong side there's something weird about they would make 3d versions of two-dimensional things and it was like staring it was like something from hp lovecraft you were staring into a, a ninth dimension which would send you insane because winnie the pooh is meant to be flat that's the rules he's meant to be flat and ours in this box, this tiny box as a haunted poo who had dimensions that he was never meant to have. I'm now scared myself. But yeah, other, otherwise the discus had bullfighters on it. It was haunting. Mother <laughs> word! Genuinely, there were countless thousands of these things. And like you say, some on brand, some off brand. But what surprises me is some of the things that didn't make it onto there that you think should have been. I mean, there were ones like, there was a Magic Roundabout set, which forget ever yeah. buying that on eBay. That goes for a fortune. But there weren't any Gordon Murray ones. There weren't any any small films ones you mentioning Bagpuss made me think of that the one that really surprised me given that it was just still photographs for five minutes there was never a Teddy Edward one huge range of books but no Viewmaster yeah it was really strange because I suppose that they have to be able to make stereoscopic actually weirdly everything did look like Teddy Edward it looked bright (laughs) slide pictures of models and it was a haunted sort of strange world but what there's a weird thing about staring at every reel was eight images or something telling you the story so you stared at those images again and again and again they went in and there's a repetition to that sort of childhood that there isn't with streamed content or with constantly changing video games and things you would have a thing and I suppose it's our version of (laughs) when you go to the Bethnal Green Museum of Childhood and they go this is Queen 
Queen Victoria's one toy. And you go, what? That was all you had? Just Or stories of people in the war who like took one toy with them. And you go, wow, weirdly, we had that. Ours was, was entertainment. The version of... That was Netflix. <laughs> Netflix for me was eight images <laughs> of haunted multidimensional Winnie the Pooh, which I stared at hoping they would reveal something. And a demo disc of Formula One cars. I would really, really like a Netflix Viewmaster demo disc with scenes from Russian Doll, <laughs> Jessica Jones, the toys that made us. Yeah. Actually, is this is this the greatest new thing you could do? Is that, is that the greatest compliment is that you should do something new in culture and there should be a Viewmaster disc of it. I mean, WandaVision would be amazing <laughs> in Viewmaster form. It'd be completely appropriate. It'd be lovely. God, I really want one now. I want a WandaVision Viewmaster. The thing is, how would you do? Because I always had that really cut down version of the narrative as well with like two senses. Yeah. How would you do WandaVision like that? It would be great. Yeah. I should, maybe there'd be a disc per episode so it would change. I, I, it'd be great, wouldn't it? I'm now thinking how much, how great that would look. They missed a trick. And also, even talking about this, I want to go and find that Viewmaster. They were great. It was a really good toy and it lasted for ages. That's a 1950s toy that was still being sold way into the 80s. It was until kids could actually have video at home. You didn't have a TV in your room. It was impossible to watch these things. It was impossible to video stuff. Again, and this was your stuff. So I had a Top Cat one. I loved Top Cat, but it was on television when the BBC decided it was on television. Whereas up in my room was some Top Cat I could watch whenever I wanted to. That was a real luxury, even if it was just eight frames of it and it was a bit weird. And also, was it actually called Top Cat on it or Boss Cat? I think it was Top Cat. I think it was properly, <laughs> properly registered. It wasn't. Boss Cat's different. Boss Cat's way... I love Boss Cat being more gangster. It feels like it should be... It's a slightly more Scorsese-ish thing, isn't it, Boss Cat? <laughs> isn't, he, isn't, he, isn't he called Don Gatto or something in French, which makes it even more gangster? Well, I've just noticed on the demonstration disc, I don't actually even know which language this is. It's got it in different languages around the edge of it, and one of them is brilliantly Disco Demos Tratavito. Oh, Three separate words. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I see that they're, they're incredibly global as well. It came from stereoscopic tourist views. It's the same thing as when you get virtu- the first thing you get on a virtual reality helmet is a tour of Venice or whatever. It comes from that thing. And really quickly, yeah, that's the most boring thing you can do with it is to be somewhere else. <laughs> it's, you, you want Joe 90. You want st- I want stuff. You want fantasy in there. It's I, I always get really annoyed when, when they dig up footage of uh, it's 1910 and here's astonishing colour footage of the Tower of London. And you go, but the Tower of London looks the same now. That's the whole point. I want astonishing restored footage of someone's serial cupboard. They always point cameras. It's Stonehenge. It's going to always look like Stonehenge. Don't ever point a camera at something that's permanent. The Matterhorn in the 70s is the Matterhorn now. At least people wanted to see the Matterhorn in the 70s, though. When book reviewer Joanne Shepard appeared on the show, she wanted to talk about something that nobody in their right mind would have wanted Viewmaster reels of. The Colorado potato beetle was an invasive species of beetle from, I assume, from Colorado that seemed to be invading Britain in the early 80s. I think it was like about the size of a thumbnail. It was a sort of little kind of yellow and brown striped thing, if I remember rightly. But we were led to believe that if one of these beetles made it onto, made it onto British soil, not only would it decimate, not only would the potato crop be gone and we'd never have chips again, we were also sort of led to believe, as I remember it, that Britain would just become a, a horrendous kind of post-apocalyptic dust bowl, like something out of Cormac McCarthy's The Road. I genuinely was terrified at the prospect of one of, one of these beetles making it into Britain. I don't know whether in my head it's all just kind of linked up with the fact that around that time, there was an awful lot of television around 
And I'm sort of conflating the, the end of the world in my head with this fairly unfrightening looking beetle. But yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Did any ever get here? I've never sort of I don't think I knew anyone who'd ever seen one. Whenever we found a, like whenever I was a kid, I was the sort of kid that used to like lifting up a rock in the garden and seeing what things were crawling around underneath it. And whenever I found sort of an interesting beetle or anything, my dad would always say, oh, it's not it's not it's not striped, is it? It's not it's not a Colorado potato beetle, because if it is. Um, but I never found one. Thank God. I, I'd probably never have recovered from the trauma. Well, my main memory of first being aware of them is it was the kind of thing you'd see where, you know, when you went to kind of like nature reserves for a day out, the kind of places you didn't want to go to. And then the visitor yeah. centre, there'd be like a poster on the wall in the background with a big drawing of a Colorado beetle yes. saying, yes. if you see one, call this number. <laughs> like you, I was constantly looking out for them. There were a lot of things around. I think it's the thing of in those days, there was less caution about messages that were sent out to adults about the idea that children might see them as well. You know, there were things like these be rabies, public information films during children's programmes without really explaining what it was. There was the whole panic about giant hogweed, which memorably Bob Fisher talked about and looks unfamiliar, where, you know, this yeah. plant was like going to march up your drive and attack you. All kinds of things. I mean, you think of how frightened people were at quicksand. Yeah, and and I, 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 different. I, I, there I, were I, really I, warnings about quicksand, but the message is just conveyed in completely the wrong way. It made the sound that like the Colorado Beetle was going to get you. Yes, completely. I was, I was terrified of them. I thought that we would all starve if the Colorado potato beetle got here. Now, I mean, this beetle must, I, I understand that it must be a problem and that it wrecks potato crops, but I mean if it's from Colorado, they have potatoes in Colorado, surely. <laughs> it can't be that much of a problem. People must have, there's no shortage of potatoes in this day and age. There was no shortage of potatoes in the 80s. It was most of what I remember eating was potatoes in the 80s to be honest. So I don't understand how they were ever causing enough of a problem to be worthy of that much alarm. And you're right that they were, you know, it was one of those things that it was often that the posters were quite alarming and I might I'm probably remembering this wrong but I'm sure (laughs) this can't be right but in my head I think that you were supposed to literally take it to the police if you found (laughs) one (laughs) now I'm sure that can't be right but no, I think you're right. I think I remember that, actually. Can you imagine? Can you imagine walking into your local police station and saying, I've found this beetle, and then, like, you know, <laughs> taking it out in a matchbox, and the police would just be like, what? Run along? What's the matter with you? It's a beetle. Get a grip, you know. And giant hogweed was another one that I was terrified of. And, in fact, we did have giant hogweed growing not far from my house where I used to take my dog for a walk when I was a kid, and I was convinced that if I so much as brushed against it, I, you know, I would blister and end up looking like the singing detective. And my other half is terrified of uh, was terrified of rabies as a child for the very reason you described, because he would have just been sat there watching Junior Kickstart or whatever, and suddenly um, an information film about rabies with a, a slathering dog would come on. And well, the one that I really remember disproportionately freaking me out was there was a public information film called Diamonds Are for Danger, which I've since seen as an adult, which is kind of done in a very jokey way. You know, it's got a kind of like James Bondy intro with glittering diamonds turning into you know the diamond hazard signs you get on yes. tankers and so on and then there's a kind of a comedy thing with comedy music and two you know middle-aged women in headscarves spotting a crash that you don't see and like you know dashing to a phone box inside of this music when i was young i didn't understand that context and i thought it was genuinely if you saw one of these vehicles with the diamond sign on disaster was liable to happen <laughs> i remember spotting them and thinking uh-oh i hope we go in the other direction you know, <laughs> 
<laughs> because, you know, we grew up with the Cold War was around, James Bond films were constantly on TV, everything was about a secret organisation that might be transporting dangerous matter. Yes. In broad daylight. But yeah, that, I think that's what I thought it was, that, you know, there were these supervillains carting toxic material around, planning to unleash it from these big tankers. Well, I definitely thought, when I try and sort of explain this to people younger than me, they look at me as if I'm an idiot, but I definitely remember as a child the, the kind of constant threat of imminent disaster just being around at all times I don't know how anyone sort of my age got through their childhood without sort of a, a, a serious anxiety problem because every I just remember, I remember John Craven talking about the doomsday clock on Newsround and stuff like that and one of my set books when I was about 12 or 13 at secondary school was Zeb for Zachariah which is a really bleak really yes. Really, really grim, really. And, and also, and we watched the TV adaptation, which is really not suitable for kids at all. Anthony Andrews is in it full frontal nude for a start. Uh, and sort of people with radiation sickness and, you know, people's hair falling out and when the wind blows and just nonstop disaster. So in my head, I think the poor Colorado potato beetle, which is, you know, let's face it, it's just a beetle that eats potatoes, was kind of conflated. Yeah, and I was really, really worried about it. But I often sort of think, like, what, are they still around, the, the Colorado potato beetles? But if I one, what would I do now? I don't know. Take it to the police, but that does bring me police. neatly into one of the two things I found out about it, because I did try to find out if there been any incursions into the UK, and everything is very, very vague about that. Almost as if it might not have happened, that they don't want <laughs> to say. The first thing I found out was, in the 80s, the USSR thought it was invented by the CIA as kind of a Cold War psyops tool. And the other thing was, the alarm was first raised in 1811 by a Thomas Nuttall. Now, given that he was basically saying about these Beatles, send them all back. Do you think you might have had a descendant later? Who... <laughs> Poor Nottles of the UKIPs by any chance. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I doubt he'd be very keen on the Colorado Beetle because, you know, his lobby were kind of very fond of telling us, you know, in the event of a no-deal Brexit, what would be the matter? We could all eat potatoes. And that destroys his argument, right? <laughs> Politics aside, as it usually is for Paul Nuttall and his mates, there's a very good chance that if you went to a video shop in the 80s, you would have seen a Colorado Beetle poster behind the counter. There's also a very good chance that you'd gone there to get out dirty dance which I was surprised to find recently some people were banned from watching because their parents assumed that it actually was a dirty film about dancing. Obviously it's a film that means a great deal to a lot of people, in particular those that were young girls at the time, but as journalist Emma Burnell recalled, it's not one that really lends itself very well to the stage musical form. Well the one that really makes me cringe to this day is Dirty Dancing. All of the things I love about Dirty Dancing aren't really in the stage version of Dirty Dancing. They massively overplay it sounds weird to say they overplay the dancing but they kind of it becomes a musical rather than a film about dancing or in which dancing is a vehicle for certain amounts of narration they took all the politics out of it and then they re-injected some weird politics into it there's this scene in it the one scene that's not karaoke was like where all the kids came together to talk about civil rights based on one line in the movie which is where Neil says we're going to go on a freedom ride they end up around this campfire singing we shall overcome and then in the sky appears the image of Martin Luther King I thought you would say <laughs> the image of Patrick Swayze for a minute <laughs> oh honestly I was like 
this is so heavy-handed, it's hilarious. And it's like, what is this doing in the middle of this depoliticized, defeminized, you know, a hen night version of Dirty Dancing? That's the one that really springs to mind when I think, yes, don't make stage shows out of really good films. But I do know, and this is going to bring me on to talk about theatre in lockdown in a second, but you went to see the secret cinema of Dirty Dancing. I assume they did that better. Oh, much better. And it's coming back and it's literally around the corner from me. So I will be able, me and my sister, who we're going to go together we'll be able to stagger home which is fabulous even in the stupid heels I plan to wear they did the secret bit the immersive bit really really well the cinema bit was less good because it was really quiet and nobody could hear it I was kind of explaining the story to about four or five groups of people who sat around me as it went along because I knew it that much off by heart that I'm like okay so in this scene <laughs> X is happening but yeah the experience of being at Kellerman's for any girl who grew up loving Dirty Dance was just fantastic. That's as maybe, but I'd probably be happier in the secret cinema experience based on the disastrous late 70s ITV Saturday morning children's show, The Mersey Pirate. Broadcaster Samira Rahmad, however, would probably have an even less well-remembered late 70s ITV Saturday morning children's show in mind. It was an LWT children's show, I think something like nine o'clock on a Saturday morning, and it was presented by Nanette Newman, you know, who was obviously known as an actor, and not, I think, at all for being a cook. And there was a cookbook that went with it, which we still have in my family. I don't know if my sister's got the copyright now or I do. And I, I again, it's one of those books, I, there's still a recipe from it that I cook, although my children argue with me about spinach. But what's interesting is two things. One is she makes a big thing in the series about there's nothing out of tins, there's no calories, there's no preservatives, so everything is natural and it's cooking from scratch. So it's everything from, I mean, there are cakes and things in it, but it's really interesting stuff like Chicken Maryland, which is kind of cooked with oranges, you know, and homemade, what do you call it? They eat it a lot in America, meatloaf. But she calls it beefcake. And she puts in a layer of cooked vegetables. So there'll be cooked spinach or a layer of cooked carrot in the middle. The illustrations, it was another artist. He's called Alan Cracknell. He's still alive. He's born in the 30s. And he had... A lovely style. He did a lot of children's cookbooks. He did posters and, and children's TV and things. And he did all the illustrations of the book, which they then used to build the props of the set. So it's all the vi- vitamins and, and minerals are all turned into little cartoon characters. So each recipe would have a little picture of iron kind of, you know, pumping weights or sprightly niacin or something. You know, it wears its educational value sort of openly. But I thought it was done really well. And they built this quite big set, which is very strange. And there's a big set... So it, completely fake in a studio of a bridge over a fake river and a kind of fake garden and she she arrives like a sort of you know like Rita Tushingham in Dr Zhivago she's a factory <laughs> worker with her hair in a scarf and a, a sort of workman like overall and she she's a group of children waiting on the side of this thing and she picks a couple of them up and they march off into a factory and it's again a fake factory but it's like the giant wall of a factory building and you open the door and you come in and suddenly you're in what in the end is just a kitchen so it sort of plays the idea of it sort of being I don't know maybe it's a bit like science fiction that children want to be taken into this world where you're a grown-up so you're going into a factory perhaps everything inside it is natural so the episode which I found on YouTube which is from I think January 1977 the, the series was sort of 76 to 77 they're making wholemeal bread from scratch and learning how to knead bread and at the end of the thing she'd always have two real children helping her make everything at the end of it there's a little you know kitchen table and there's always a celebrity and it was Dickie Davis who wow. <laughs> comes to meet them and you know eats their sliced bread and spreads it with butter and jam and I mean I just remember I remember really loving the recipes and being struck by how exotic it was. There was a recipe for gazpacho. You know, that's that's the soup recipe. That's the first recipe in the book. 
how to make your own chilled gazpacho. And she says, you know, I know it sounded a bit odd to have a chilled soup, but this is amazing and really refreshing. It's just terrific. And I must have told you my Nanette Newman story because I, I didn't exactly meet her. But when Richard Attenborough had a film season at the British Film Institute, God, it must have been nearly 20 years ago. He famously came to every screening and they were screening one of the films that Brian Forbes had directed, which was a Seance on a Tuesday Afternoon. And they both came with their wives. So, you know, Richard Attenborough, Brian Forbes, Nanette Newman, and I can't remember who Richard Attenborough's wife was. And all four of them were sitting together in a row. When Richard Attenborough got up to introduce the film, he talked about how Brian Forbes was the best friend he'd ever had and they were still best friends and how they and their wives all got together all the time. And just they were this lovely, you know, this the, these two couples who were just the best of friends. So she just seems, she seems to be an amazingly lovely woman who was teaching us about good nutrition in 1976 when McDonald's was just about to spread its evil across the land. Well, I'm just wondering if Dickie Davis just happened to be, I mean, World of Sport was LWT, wasn't it? It must have yeah, been. Yeah, but and, I mean, it would have he been must have just recorded. been passing and they said, quick, come in and be a guest on this. Yeah, well, if you know, have you ever been to the old LWT studios? You know that LWT tower that used to be on the South Bank? It only got demolished, I think, two years ago. So the thing about that building, and I have done things like, have I got news for you? It used to be recorded there. Lorraine and, you know, Good Morning Britain always came from there. It's an incredibly narrow building with, you know, it's two big studios on the ground floor. So I guess if you were in there, you weren't far from the only other thing that was being recorded so I wonder if they recorded it on a Saturday you know and they just got him on you know after he'd finished I don't know I love the idea that he might have walked straight from there into the world of sports studio because that's how television worked for me when I was really young (laughs) I imagined people wandering between programs I think I for some reason I think I had an obsession with I thought the Mastermind Studio was used for making, I can't remember what, but a puppet programme that had a black background. I always pictured Magnus Magnuson kicking, you know, no, Ragtime had a white background, didn't it? But whatever had a black background, Magnus Magnuson kicking the props out of the way (laughs) impatiently when he strode on. But I remember when Andrew Collins and Stuart McConey used to do the music club on Radio 1, that once when they did that, they were guest hosting Mark Radcliffe's show immediately after it. And they did a bit of business at the end where they said, hey, Andrew, I'm doing Mark Radcliffe's show. Do you fancy coming with me? Oh, yeah. And they did a bit of walking along the corridor business, and I love that. Well, nowadays, of course, everyone sort of hot desks in the same studio because we have fewer studios. But I can kind of put some reality to your, you know, your kind of childhood imagination of it because, what I mean, 95, there was a big Star Trek convention in London at the Albert Hall, and me and the other big Star Trek fan at BBC News, oh, let's do a load of reports. And Patrick Stewart was on Blue Peter, and we got an agreement that he would come and do an interview for news straight after. So I had the surreal experience of, you know, going down onto the Blue Peter set where I think they were, I don't know if it was live even, and we had to walk around the back through the black curtain and sort of escort Patrick Stewart off the set as soon as he'd finished his thing and then take him, you know, up to, you know, a different part of TV centre. And there was a, literally a cupboard that was used as a mini studio because it had a, a sort of green screen type curtain. And we sat him in there. And in fact, I've, I've it's probably up on YouTube somewhere, but I've got the report. And you had that sense of, you know, you walked through people's other worlds and sets. Mm-hmm. And then the other example, though it's not one that I experienced, it's a floor manager who works with me on Newswatch. And, you know, in the days of TV Centre, when all these, you know, Newsnight was... Newsnight and Blue Peter shared the same studio, just so you know. So they took the set down and they redressed it. But, you know, you did have dramas next to news. And he just remembered one day he was on the set of a big news programme and a Victorian seaman walked onto the set and it was someone looking for the Oneidin line. (laughs) (laughs) And I just love the idea of this Victorian sailor in his kind of full kit just walking on. (laughs) Where 
am I? So there you go. That used to happen. But yeah, there's so little out there about the Fun Food Factory. I found basically two things online. One is the TV cream entry, where normally when I look back at old TV cream entries, it's difficult to say which of us actually wrote it. I think given that I don't remember the Fun Food Factory, this isn't one I wrote. I think we can be quite certain of that. That entry also suggests that there was a danger sign on the wall that would start flashing whenever yes. they had to use a knife or something. So that Nanette could address the camera and say, don't do this at home or get an adult to help you. Yeah, and in the book too, there's a little warning sign. It's, it looks a bit, actually it looks a bit like Zebedee, who appears in the photograph whenever it involves turning on the cooker. And the cooker is shown as kind of having, you know, like the chef's kitchens where the gas flame like really roars up. I mean, that's how it's portrayed in the book. It was unashamedly aimed at quite young children in some ways, you know, so... It's just really sweet because it's the idea of encouraging independence and experimenting with relatively exotic ingredients. But, you know, you're probably not going to be allowed in the kitchen on your own very easily. So you, you don't want them chopping up that gazpacho with a, you know, with a large mandolin or whatever. So, yes, I mean, maybe in the 70s as well, it just they just wore their health and safety ideas more strongly, which is weird because in real life it wasn't like that at all. Well, maybe that's one of the reasons why there have been very few children's TV cookery shows over the years. And it could be the reason why people always snort at you know the recipes that they did on things like why don't you and i think of blue peter at times it was very simplistic and you know add x to y where x is normally chocolate and that's that but maybe it's because they didn't want a mass outbreak of utensil misuse and yet you know they sent john nopes up to you know to do <laughs> yeah. you know nelson's column without any health and safety assessment and apparently all of the child chef helpers that she had were stage school children and the only other thing i found on the internet suggests that one of them was Jesse Bertall, who obviously was later evil Marcus Tandy in El Dorado. Okay, that's a niche piece of knowledge that I thought you were going to say was in Harry Potter or something, but as a as a parent, but um, I don't know. They were they, they were they were they were physically of different range. I'm pretty sure there was at least one person of colour, and certainly in the episode that's on YouTube, you know, one of the the kids is actually quite large, you know, physically overweight, and you know, there's no thing made of it at all. So I think it was actually quite inclusive for it its time as well. So, given that you still make recipes from the Magic Roundabout one, have you ever revisited the cookbook for the Fun Food Factory? Yeah, well, I made the meatloaf. My son asked for meatloaf because I think he'd heard a lot about it from American culture or he might have had one at a friend's house. And so I said, oh, I've got a recipe. And it was this you know, what she called beefcake, but essentially meatloaf. And it was good, except that he didn't like the fact that there was, you know, healthy vegetables kind of <laughs> in the middle. There was a layer that you put in of, of cooked spinach or cooked carrot. He said, I really like the meatloaf apart from that. I can't remember many of the other recipes off the top of my head, but you know, I had recipes things like how to make your own yogurt from scratch, which is actually quite easy to do. I mean, you know, it's it's got a whole macrobiotic feel without wearing it very overtly. I mean, it really holds up. I would get, I'll, I'll dig out the book. It's a beautiful book. There were some lovely books. I think it was Hamlin were particularly good publishers of children's cookbooks. And they were a big A3 format. Oh, sorry, there would be A3 if you opened, you know, the front and the back. If you think about a Nigella Lawson cookbook, they're taller than that, but much thinner. So they were, they were almost like picture books. And in fact, my fondest memories of the books I read in the 70s are all cookbooks. You know, there's the Fun Food Factory one, there's the Magic Roundabout cookbook. And there's another cookbook which I wish I could remember what it was called because I would find it on Abe Books and buy it. And it was a cookbook inspired, where every recipe was inspired in theory by a fairy tale. So it had the recipe for summer pudding, which I'd never come across before. The idea of eating cold, juice-soaked bread, you know, not realising what an amazing tasting thing it is. But that was linked to the story of, you know, Snow White in the forest gathering berries or something. 
And they were these beautiful recipes all linked to fairy stories. It would give you the fairy story with it. So there was some really creative publishing going on with a lot of these amazing artists, like the ones you and I have been discussing. It, you know, it doesn't get the same attention because it wasn't necessarily televised. And if you think the book based on the Fun Food Factory is obscure, writer Johnny Morris didn't even know which programmes some of his toys came from. This is what it's like when you have action figures from shows you haven't seen. Because I had this sort of weird sort of orange robot dog with black eyes, this sort of articulated limbs. And for years, I was just going, what is this? Is this a bootleg Star Wars figure? I mean, did they do bootleg Star Wars figures? Because certainly by about 1982-ish, you look at the Star Wars catalogue and you go, I don't remember any of these guys being in the film. There's a bit in Empire Strikes Back where it pans across all the bounty hunters and you go, you have literally only put him in this film. So you can say, literally, <laughs> he's only in that shot. He does nothing in the film. And then in Return of the Jedi, it goes down below decks on the desert yacht and it's like these are only people we're going to be seeing once we're going to, well, no, they're not proper characters you know they're not proper characters they're just here to sell the toys so yeah I had the Daggett and it's part of a whole sort of interesting feeling I think what it's like when you know there are shows you haven't seen so like I say, like the Black Hole Annual, I'd read that. I'd never seen the film, you know, not even a clip of it, but I knew of it. And with Battlestar Galactica, I, I, I had the little Daggett figure, which I eventually worked out was from Battlestar Galactica, because Lookin had a Battlestar Galactica comic strip, which I followed avidly, but never saw an episode. Never saw the thing because it was on ITV and I wasn't, I was far too middle class to watch ITV. So yeah, it's the whole thing of eventually it becomes an itch to scratch. And so during lockdown, I went, I have to go back and finally watch these programs. I have to, for the sake of my, you know, eight year old self, I have to find out what all these things that I really yearned to see, but never got to see whether they were any good or not and try to sort of put myself in the mental place where I would enjoy it as a kid. But it's very hard to do that when you're watching it and it has Erin Gray in it as Wilma and you're just sort of going, I can't really imagine watching this as a seven year old because I'm too distracted. You also, what it is, is it's a science fiction show when you're sort of viewing it from the outside. So you can sort of just, you don't quite know what it's all about. You just sort of, so you imagine it, you make up your own stories, your own sort of world. I mean, because everything's accessible now, it's very hard not to watch something. Well, I was thinking when I was preparing for this about how odd it is that, I mean, I remember watching Battlestar Galactica. I don't remember it that clearly, but I remember enough about it. I now knew what the Cylons were when one turned up in the opening titles of the A-Team and things like that. But when I think of how much Battlestar Galactica merchandise I had, including some of the figures, that was actually, it was mine. It wasn't handed down from elder siblings, like, you know, things like that often were. This is stuff I remember being given because just thinking about it, I had, there was a toy, Colonial Viper and Cylon Raider, which weren't very big, but they had a little Cylon and a little Viper pilot that you could take out with tiny movable limbs. That was really exciting. I had a jigsaw, I had several books. I also had the Daggett figure, which I remember clearly asking for because I loved Muffet the Daggett because, you know, I was that age. <laughs> But I also later, this is why I think me and probably a lot of people by age ended up with so much Battlestar Galactica stuff was it never really took off as a series. I think it was cancelled and then brought back and that sort of deal. And probably all this stuff, particularly in the UK, was remained really quickly because I'm fairly certain the other two figures that I had, which were the Imperious Leader and Lucifer, I think I got them. Uh, you know when your parents work would have a Christmas party for the children of employees and somebody dressed as Santa would give out toys that were clearly going <laughs> cheap somewhere. I'm fairly sure that's where I got them from. And I remember there was, because there were only about 12 figures in total. The main thing that struck me is even at that age, I thought, who wants a figure of Lorne Green? I couldn't figure that out. But also, there were things like the Yovion Warrior, where you look at them and think, who's got that? 
Nobody I know has got that. But <laughs> obviously this stuff, you know, it was considered totally discardable at one point. And now, I mean, I don't even look for a Muffet the Daggett figure on eBay because oh, I can I imagine, do. you know, particularly because I imagine they're quite breakable as well, that they're probably going for a fortune now. I think it's about £25, even without the packet. Like you said, these things only came out for a brief while. Possibly not in all toy shops. I'm not sure they would have got as far as Taunton toys. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, Taunton is the edge of the world. As, as far as science fiction is concerned also when you watch it you're going this is very very bit of a misfire in terms of tone because you know the first episode is very dark it is stuff about you know children die in the first story and stuff and it's about these sort of intergalactic refugees in a war zone and then within about 45 minutes they've gone to other planet of the space casino and it's you know it's women go-go dancing with their midge of showing and wearing spandex and you go what is this is, is this show an argument is this a show between one person who's going it's going to be dark and serious and another person going no it's going to be camp fun and it never quite gets the tone so you'd have an episode where the sort of opening storyline is that starbuck is dating two women and then the episode will end we're going i'm afraid we couldn't save them and it's like what are you doing you have no idea what who your audience is what your tone is it's all over the place which in a way is wonderful because you don't get tv programs have more thought put in or that sort of stuff doesn't escape anymore in the way that it used to you know it'd be one person's vision and that person would be slightly mad in what they wanted they wanted everything at once well i am firmly convinced Convinced, despite you know there's the whole idea that Battlestar Galactica was basically a rip-off of Star Wars and it was very much commissioned in slipstream and so on but I don't think despite there being all this merchandise it was made with merchandising in mind because if you look at the Star Wars equivalents you know particularly if you watch the brilliant the toys that made us on it on Netflix you know they had this stuff ready not quite out of the starting blocks because of that famous thing about kids being given certificates for Christmas to say you'll get a Star Wars figure in the new year but they had plans for <laughs> No, they weren't as elaborate figures, but they were the perfect size. They were well made in the sense that they were solidly constructed. I mean, it didn't look much like Mark Hamill, the Luke Skywalker figure, but it was what kids wanted. Whereas these are a bit more cumbersome, a bit more easily breakable. You look at them and you think, who thought any kid was going to want to toy that? Whereas you mentioned the Bounty Hunters in Empire Strikes Back. As weird as they look, you can see exactly why. At the design stage, somebody must have thought of a figure while they were making apparently it's not actually called Forlom but I call him Forlom you know all of them they've got a real kind of toy selling point look and I don't think apart from the Cylons anything about Star Galactica really did they do have aliens in it but they're repulsive mostly (laughs) they're repulsive and it will be an exotic dancer with three eyes or something you're going that's not really erotic that's just disturbing and frightening and you wouldn't want an action figure of it you know it's it isn't like what you would do now which is you you would do a different monster in every episode and just so you had a different toy to sell i mean battlestar galactica they sort of they have that blake seven thing of going should this be a show without aliens would that work better i mean i think that's what they did when they brought it back isn't it they didn't have aliens in it at all they just sort of had the cylons and stuff is this universe should be dark and gritty and about politics and sort of refugees or terrorists or whatever but then you just want to have aliens as well and somehow that doesn't fit because when you have aliens very very soon you're going to have an alien god that's playing the harpsichord and making everyone do little dances and then the week after that you're going to have the the weird virus that makes everyone want to have sex with each other and then you're going to be ending up on the planet where the aliens want to watch humans having sex because these things always (laughs) these sort of plots just turn up in every show 
the other one is one of the things I love is that in any science fiction show, it's impossible for someone to say we have a lot to talk about. It's we have much to discuss. No one would ever say that in real life. No one would ever meet someone and say, I see you've formed quite a welcoming committee. These things are meaningless, but they fill these things. And I mean, one of the things I find, because I write Doctor Who things for a big finish, is that when I write a first draft, I tend to accidentally do this a lot. All these sort of terrible sort of lines. I wrote one today where someone goes, Captain, it was an act of necessity. We had to do it. And it's going, how has anyone ever used the phrase an act of necessity before? That's just like something that a computer translation program would throw up. But when you're in science fiction mode, you find yourself writing these bizarre, bizarre things and going, oh. at no point can someone say it's a force field. They have to say it's some kind of force field of some <laughs> kind. They're using some sort of energy weapon. They're using an energy weapon. <laughs> Why? Once you realise these sort of ticks that science fiction has, it becomes sort of hysterical and hypnotic. Director Matt Lee, on the other hand, spent a lot of his childhood shoving 10 pences into a phone box to hear an American band playing songs down the phone line. Let's be honest, they probably had some songs about action figures where you didn't know what show they were from anyway. They have this thing called the dial song service where you would call a number, overseas number, for sure in the United States, and you could hear one person at a time could be connected to this answer machine and you could hear these very lo-fi renditions of their songs over the phone, which just seems like the most awesome thing in the world. Yeah, and it was pretty soon after they'd come to any kind of public attention at all really because they were very much sort of they were a band that i was aware existed not even john peel played them really janice long did and possibly Mark Goodyear when he started. Actually, they might have slightly predated the evening session, but Birdhouse and Your Soul seemed to come out of nowhere in the first couple of weeks of 1990. And it's interesting what then happened with them, because I remember I heard that on, I can't even remember who played it, but I heard it on Radio 1 on a Saturday morning, and I went into town that day to buy it from our price. And I remember sitting in McDonald's afterwards, like looking at this record, record thinking oh i wonder what hot char the b-side sounds like <laughs> and there were actually some girls sat on the same table were saying what's that record and i said what it was one of them said how come i've never heard of them in the charts which is a fair question really but you no know, i got it home i loved it i thought hot char was a bit weird but i still quite liked it i then got flood to the album which i loved but i immediately knew when i heard it that there was all this promotional weight behind them and it wasn't an album was going to sell to the sort of people who like that one stray hit and that's been yeah. pretty much their career ever since i think a huge pr machine swinging in behind when they occasionally write something really chart friendly and the rest of it is just too weird for the general public well i mean flood is their first album on a major label so they had yeah. two before that and then they have a couple of major label albums and then around 1996, 97 they kind of leave major labels again and go back to kind of independent stuff they are predominantly known i guess to the general public for a few songs Birdhouse in Your Soul being one of them, Boss of Me, which is used as the theme tune to Malcolm in the Middle. A couple of videos were made by the guys who did Tiny Toon Adventures, and they did a couple of videos to um, Particle Man, and I forget the other one, but there's a couple of like Tiny Toons videos that were like... The cool thing about those, those guys is they've never really stopped doing anything. They're still doing stuff now, and they've kind of fallen into a nice format, I think, where they kind of produce a kid's album, and then an adult album, and then they tour and then they release some bits online, and they kind of repeat that cycle over and over again. That dialer song thing is what really caught me. The catchphrase was, free when you call from work, which is... Uh, <laughs> certainly, John Flansburg has a very, like, 
anti-work, anti-boss kind of theme through a lot of their songs. Minimum Wage is on that, on that album. I mean, it's like a sound of a whip being cracked, you know? And so, yeah, it's telling, I guess, that the, yeah, it's free when you go from work. It's a pretty cool slogan that I have to say. Well, minimum wage is one of the two things I've always used when, you know, if you're at, say, a boring business function or something feeling a bit out of place and you're thinking, is anyone here on my wavelength? One of the things is to shout never, ever, and see if somebody says bloody anything ever. The other is to shout minimum wage and see if somebody says yee-haw. <laughs> that way you have found somebody to talk to, which is always welcome. I have to give that a try, I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Tyler Song is a, is a pretty cool idea. And sadly, it's no longer really around anymore, I think. They had a hard time kind of sourcing the particular hardware to, to record the stuff on. I mean, it went briefly digital, and I think now it's just a website. But I mean, I guess in the era of everyone's on the internet all the time, it doesn't really make sense to have a phone number anymore, but it does seem a little sad that you're no longer the only one listening when you call that number. So what songs were on there when you called, particularly the first time that you called, I'm intrigued by? The first time I called was from a phone box, and I must have put three or four quid into this phone box to call this number. And it was so, so you know, in the early 90s, calling the United States from the UK was so expensive. Yeah. Like, you don't think about that now, but like phone calls would be like, if you had a relative or a friend in another country, you might call up for 30 seconds and say, hi, Merry Christmas, good night, by click and put the phone down, you know. But I think I got managed to get about a minute and a half or two minutes out of it. And there was a song that they later released way, 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 way later called Ant which is about an ant crawling up someone's head. The songs weren't the same as the ones you hear on the album. They were actually recorded specifically into the machine itself, I think, because there was certain frequencies would like disturb the recording, is what I, is what I understand. So they had to like re-record them like especially kind of tight and kind of lo-fi and at a certain volume to get them to work. Did you know why they had that service at all in the first place? The reason they had it, as I understand it, is that Linnell was doing his day job as a bike messenger and broke his hand, and so they couldn't play any gigs for a while. And so as a way of getting something out there they just put an ad in the local paper in the village voice and said basically like they might be giants i'm in a phone number i don't know if you've heard that there's a track on one of their albums where it's a lady talking into like an answer phone and that's actually from like the machine itself like after the song finished playing she had them on like a three-way call with somebody else and so it just kept recording what she was saying and so they just took it and like they have apparently like 40 minutes or something of her talking about the band but we just took a snippet of it and put it on the album. Yeah, it's kind of a fascinating approach to like, you know, figuring out, you know, you know, you have this kind of, you can't play a gig. So what you do, you, you record something on a, on a phone and stick it in the paper and hopefully people will call in and, and find it. It seemed to work for them. And there was a brief phase where, I mean, they never quite took off over here. There was Birdhouse in Your Soul and a couple of near hits, like The Statue Got Me High, a Snail Shell, certainly got a lot of play on Radio 1, but they seem to be quite popular with unlikely TV shows. You know, you wouldn't have seen them on Wogan or anything. But they turn up on things like the 815 from Manchester, Tonight with Jonathan Ross, which I also taped when they were on that. All kinds of radio shows you wouldn't expect. It was like they were prepared to do the shows that nobody else really wanted to do. And in turn, those shows were really glad to have them because they were always good value. They always had something interesting to say and a funny way of saying it. Yeah, it's funny. You know, when I saw them live in London a couple of times at the Astoria, it's funny the people you see at these things you'd see the likes of Jonathan Ross kind of would show up to these concerts because they would do very few touring dates in the UK so when they would come to London that was be often where you'd see a lot of the people in the media who would put them on we would just be there in the audience I think I saw Louis Theroux at one on Adam and Joe maybe as well at one of their concerts yeah you know it's it's funny because over here they, they tour constantly and so I've, I think I've probably I think I've seen them like nearly 60 times live now which is crazy I've definitely gone to like multiple shows in like multiple weeks 
for the same album, which is always fun experience. And you know, it's and they and they, they do provide a great deal of value, you know, as you say. Well, I remember being thrilled when very early on on Mark Radcliffe's late night Radio One show, the Graveyard Shift as it was informally known, they were on promoting John Henry, which was a, I hesitate to say it was a slightly more serious album, but you know what I mean by that, don't you? It was yeah, more, yeah. more structured, more straightforward songs, things like Why Must I Be Sad was on there and so on. They did a couple of songs from that in session, and they'd obviously been listening to the show, because you know, he had quite an eccentric playlist, and there'd be new indie releases, there'd also be 60s garage stuff and prog rock and so on. And earlier in that show, he played the Frank Zappa track, he'd also also played Nantucket Sleigh Ride by Mountain, which is the Weekend World theme. And they'd obviously been listening to what he was playing because they spontaneously went into Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter Group. He was thrilled by that, Mark Radcliffe. He was absolutely made up. And I love the fact they just adapted so quickly to, you know, they got the sense of the show and they just yeah. tailored what they were doing to that. And I really loved that. That's not something you catch people doing that often, I don't think. I don't think I've seen them live, uh, at least recently, but one of the things they did for a while on their live shows would basically take a radio on stage, plug it in to the sound system and like tune around the radio and find kind of a song that was playing on the local radio somewhere and just listen to it for a few seconds and then just kind of dim the radio and just carry on playing it making up the words on, on the spot but they were kind of sound like but the country song it sounds really fantastic they're just, they're just making up the lyrics as they go along and kind of playing a generic country song but it's, it sounds great interactivity had moved on slightly from dialer song by the time of one of the theatre critics you need salmon's choices but it's possible that youthful responsibility towards the new technology hadn't really changed that much they were basically virtual pets so it came about again in the late 90s early 2000s post tamagotchi so it's kind of Tamagotchi for the website age. And the reason I have a lot of fondness for it is my kind of main internet name, Braintree, came from Neopets. I was registering with a site and I didn't want to use my real name because my real name is quite unusual. So I had in the drop down menu Braintree because there was a game on there that was impossible. You'd ask this tree with a brain for kind of branches questions <laughs> ask you a question i can't remember so i was obviously doing lots of whatever google was at that point to try and pass these things again i'm shocked to see that it's still going i thought it was very much of its time but they were quite kind of alien like pets it wasn't anything that looked like a nice sort of cat or anything but you had to it meant you had to log on regularly because you had to feed your pet and, and make sure it didn't get sick and all these sorts of things but there was other little games as well that you could play and again i think the reason again it's just nostalgia for you know games don't look like that anymore neopets is still going but i can't imagine in a world where you have kind of things on your phone and <laughs> tablet that you would go for something like this but it had little cute things like it was you could buy and sell stocks and you could just sort of talk to sort of other non-playable characters and it was more kind of like a game but it was a game that you didn't sort of need a console for really you know it was something that never really in my mind it probably could have had like an animal crossing type spin-off into consoles at the time but it has stayed as just kind of a, a generic sort of flash website really and there was you know multiplayers and things I mean, it was probably much safer than Habbo hotel which are kind of they're, they're linked in my mind but i've used them for very different things because you could probably convince friends to go on sort of Habbo hotel but neopets probably seemed even at the age i was of about sort of 12 13 probably a bit too babyish but yeah it's about yeah how for me again you do see people occasionally talk about it but there isn't this huge kind of nostalgia for it that i would expect particularly people 
my age to have and I think it's partly because there was just so much going on online if you were online there were a lot of people kind of of my age and a bit younger who weren't quite online yet but there's the aspect that for me that kind of neopets is kind of paved the way for a lot of those online games and message boards and guilds and how games look now like this idea I've been playing the Jeopardy app game and there's a big focus on those games that you join a guild or you join a group and it's that real social side that is actually probably not really needed really but that was what they wanted to encourage but I don't remember I'm just reading something now that apparently to comply with laws that parents had to fax in parental consent they had to fax them in oh that, fax in parental that ties it to uh... it's like of its time I don't think we ever owned a fax but I don't think I've heard the word fax for at least a decade now <laughs> because <laughs> and it's, it's not I'd forgotten as well I thought it was an American thing I think it was bought by American officers and that's why it became so big but it was actually formed in the UK and I think that probably came from this idea of you know as I said of Tamagotchis and those kind of things and really how can you use the internet to kind of have something to come back for I think that's the main thing you know to have you something you've got to feed and look after and have responsibility for that was actually free to use and so much now is about credits and all those kind of things I don't remember ever spending cash money on these things and that's probably why I'm quite nostalgic for them there was quite a big thing for virtual pets that point though for reasons I don't quite understand because as you say it really started with the Tamagotchis which everyone had and everyone kind of maintained for a bit and then forgot about and the poor things didn't survive but I do know somebody <laughs> who threw one in the River Mersey but that's another story but then it moved on to everyone wanted do you remember those like sentient robot dogs that were a bit like a kind of streamlined yeah. canine that were in that Janet Jackson video and also I'm exaggerating this in my head but I have memories of entire episode of so graham norton being taken off with graham norton going oh it's so cute as one of them slowly walked towards him for the whole program yeah. <laughs> i never wanted yeah. them but they were about 10 million pounds or something so everyone got cheap knockoffs <laughs> like i know the things for kids like furbies and so on. there's some adult ones as well and i've still got somewhere somebody got me because of where i was living at that point i couldn't have a cat somebody bought me a thing called a gigabot which is a sort of robot bear cub thing where you're supposed to talk to it and sing to it and feed it with a plastic spoon and so on and it gradually became your friend I couldn't work it out it became annoying and I put it in my wardrobe and every so often you'd just be walking about sort of doing something else and minding your own business you'd hear that boing it made when it came oh to life and it, it, it is still around somewhere so, and then there were things like the sims pets which yeah i think was actually quite realistic and was it kind of an update to the way blue peter initially brought in their pets for you know for the benefit of kids who didn't have pets at home that they could feel some kind of ownership over jason or shep or jack and jill or whoever was it an extension of that was it a service or was it just people trying to make money out of people i think at that point i don't remember because like i grew up in a house with no money so i wouldn't have been able to ask my mum for money to spend on this nonsense i think nowadays definitely it's about money but i think i agree with you that thing about i downloaded the sims 4 recently and it's got a pack where you can have a cat or a dog and you can choose the breed and all these kind of things and yeah we don't i don't have a pet so i was like oh I'll just get this and that can be like my pet to look after <laughs> the Sims 4. and it's not as big a commitment as having a baby because you can just leave out some food and it's, it's fine but yeah there was i think there was that air of i think sense of responsibility and in a sense like fun but a degree of education so it's like oh yeah but I've got a purpose I'm not just messing about on the internet I'm looking after my neopets and I'm learning things and I'm you know 
seeing different types of pets or different types of people <laughs> and how I don't know how people really got away with it again it was probably parents weren't really aware of what was going on, on the internet and just let their kids do anything on dial up but yeah I think same to said for me it's about kind of how that really cemented how gaming looks now and those ideas of those little apps and now you wouldn't you probably wouldn't go on Neopets to do something like that you'd have an app that would be focused on well I would like a cat but my parents won't let me have a cat so I'm just going to get an app that means I can look after a cat I've got a disturbing question though do you think your Neopet is still out there somewhere given the trail we all leave behind ourselves digitally is it still wandering around on Neopets oh it must be yeah <laughs> long dead long dead I mean I <laughs> multiple ones as well i feel like they died a lot and i just set up a new one like there was just no sense of responsibility <laughs> so yeah I, I i think i looked at it recently and i was like i don't even think i've got the same email address for when i set up my neopets i can't remember that email i'm more worried about that email address being out in the ether really than <laughs> Diane the Doors, bizarrely, pioneered a very early form of pet interactivity, as her biographer Anna Kale related, but before we got to that, there was a very odd regular appearance she had on TBAM to talk about. Okay, so Diane the Doors had, let me say, 1983, a segment each Friday on TBAM. It was a dieting show. It was hilarious. It was lovely, actually. No, it was, it was lovely. But yeah, a little bit, a bit crazy, I guess, as a concept. But basically, she had her Doors dozen, which was uh, 12 people that were dieting, along with her to lose weight you know within the weeks of the the segment and each week you'd have a different one of them come back and kind of talk about what they had done that week and maybe do a bit of a, a recipe or whatever and it was delightful and you're right i remember it really well and this is the thing i obviously i've, I've written about diana doors I'm, I'm a big fan of her film work but i first saw her on this 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 was my first introduction to her as a personality as, as a person and she's she's truly delightful on it she really is i think it's interesting and i imagine you probably addressed this in your book though my first memories of her are things like this where I don't remember the segment but I remember there was a trailer shown constantly throughout the week on TVAM where for some reason she came out of a caravan and tipped some chips from a chip pan onto the floor <laughs> and said and it's goodbye <laughs> to all of those but it was things like this like the yes. worm that turned yeah. The, oh yeah, yeah the yeah. Just Williams series the Adamant video yeah. she was in she was somebody who you know when the other work wasn't forthcoming rolled her sleeves up and got on with what was on offer really enthusiastically I mean you can't can't look at her dancing in Prince Charming and think that's somebody on their uppers. She is enjoying that. She's loving that. But where does people celebrate men like Kenneth Williams for doing similar, for taking other odd bits of work when they couldn't get anything more high profile? I think Diana Dawes is a bit, not scorned for it, but is treated as though it's a sad end to a great career. And I'm not sure it, I don't think she saw it that way. Absolutely not. No, she she loved it. She, like you say, she embraced the opportunities that came along. She was game for a laugh. She really was well she might even have been on game she for probably for was, all yeah. I know. and this is the thing you know in the early 80s i remember her really well as being a larger than life vivid wonderful personality that used to appear on my screen you know she would she'd be appearing on tv obviously on a regular basis at that time but also she was on chat shows she was on other things and she was always always seemed to be such delightful company and always enjoying herself always really happy to be there and kind of coming out with the delightful anecdotes you talk about kenneth williams you know everyone talks about him and his anecdotes he's talking diana could absolutely match him you know in terms of kind of the the kind of thing she'd bring into conversation on those shows she was absolute fun she was engaging she was witty she was an intelligent woman television was something she really enjoyed doing 
and obviously from doing the book and, and, and reading more about her and finding out more about her career, she enjoyed television. She liked the interaction with the audience that came from it, particularly on, you know, kind of the, the panel shows or the, the chat shows. And she thrived in that environment. And towards the end of her career, you know, she she, she loved doing it. You know, she, she loved having those interactions and doing those shows. And she was able to take the mickey out of herself. You know, she knew herself really well. As I say, she, she was a very intelligent woman and she, she knew how to make the best of those situations. I think she just misrepresented at every level, really. I mean, because the other thing people say, apart from, oh, she had this, you know, this dazzling career early on and then, oh, she was doing game shows by the end. The other thing is people go on and on and on about her personal life, which I think, as far as I can tell, was just a few years early in their success and maybe ill-advised recreational choices, shall we say, that were probably nothing compared to what people are regularly in the headlines for now. But for a long time, she was very happily married to Alan Lake, who was a great actor, is in things like Slade in Flame. And he was absolutely broken when she died. So why define her by a bit of getting carried away very early on when obviously she found stability later? Maybe that's what people should remember. Absolutely. Yeah, she she and and Alan Lake were devoted to each other and they were married for a very long time. You know, he he was her third husband. Does it, you know, I'm suggesting maybe people read my book to to find out more about her. (laughs) That was kind of what I was pushing towards. Um, So, yeah, you know, there were some some colourful moments uh, kind of maybe early on. But you're right, you know, she had a a lovely relationship with Alan Lake through the the 70s and and beyond. The poignancy of the TVAM slot for me is that it was the last thing she did on TV. Sadly, she she passed away in uh, 1984 when she was 52. And the whole point of the TVAM slot was she was trying to lose weight. The hook it was that it was around was she was trying to lose 52 pounds, I think it was, by her 52nd birthday, which she managed to do. Some people may say that she cheated slightly by just wearing lighter jewellery on each show. But, you know, she kind of... (laughs) She, she, she did it in good spirits. She loved working with the members of the public on it as well and kind of getting their stories. Um, I actually spoke to someone. Well, unfortunately, I found this person just after I'd finished the book, but it kind of reiterated what I thought anyway. I spoke to someone who'd worked with her on the TVAM segment as a young researcher or, you know, kind of a young person kind of working in TV and said that Diana Dawes was absolutely delightful to work with. And it just reiterated how I perceived her through my writing about her and, and finding out more about her. She was incredibly glamorous. You know, she was a beautiful woman, you know, she looked amazing but she was incredibly down to earth as well and, and lovely engaging and sweet working with the members of the public on that segment you can see it you know you can see she wasn't wasn't you know she was tangible you know she was kind of a person you could see you'd want to go down the pub with and have a laugh so she, she came across so well on that segment I think for me it, it summed up her as a person you know the, the way she comes across on, on that segment she did enjoy TV she did a, a few forays into TV before this you know various kind of attempts at chat shows of her own and things like that but the one that I would have loved to have seen I've not actually seen an episode because I can't find I can't find it anywhere was something called pause for doors which was a pet chat show that she did (laughs) quite early on and honestly I would I would kill to be able to see a clip from that show it wasn't the pets it was it was the pet owners it was a pilot (laughs) where she um, had three guests with their pets and they would talk through um, their pets Oh, it's probably still more interesting than the average edition of Parkinson. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, this is the thing: everything she did, everything she did in TV, had, was wonderfully named. Pause Doors is just the best name you could possibly want for that <laughs> show. Her first autobiography was called Swinging Doors, so like she was funny. She was a really funny, witty, sharp woman, and yeah, I, I think people either forget that or didn't don't realise. You know, she's she's more than just a, a 1950s film star. She she was a a, a great. 
personality. She showed that through her career. And her career was long and fun and interesting. It wasn't just a few films in the 50s. Well, yes, because she still did interesting things. Like, she was in Deep End, that weird yeah, British oh, German horror yeah. film. The Pied Piper, with mentioning him again, mm. Donovan, the really creepy yeah. 70s version. She always did all these interesting things as well. It's just she went on TVAM at the same time. Well, not exactly at the same time as them. But... Yeah. yeah, no, her film career in the 70s is fascinating. And she did that alongside a TV career, a, a healthy TV career as well. You know, she was in an episode of Minder. She was a huge guest star in, in things. She had a, a full and an interesting screen career. And I think, you know, again, obviously covering the book, but, you know, she kind of, I think she enjoyed being able to drop that thing of, you know, only being seen as a, a kind of glamorous young film star. You know, once she was able to embrace character roles and kind of given that, those opportunities, she absolutely ran with them. And, you know, her, her 70s film career is really fascinating, actually. And as I say, runs alongside an interesting TV career. You know, she, she utilised every every opportunity and did it with relish, really. Well, she did because, you know, people might like to bang on about her early film roles, but what is it that people remember? It is things like this about her. It's yeah. the worm that turned, which I can confirm absolutely. a young MIDI driver was frightened by her in that. So <laughs> she really filled all these roles so brilliantly. And we should embrace these kind of things about people's careers. It shouldn't just be stripped down to what the critics like or dislike because everybody has a career that encompassed all kinds of things and I think she's one of the best examples of it. Absolutely, yeah, no, she, she's absolutely smashing. And now, something you might not have heard. Me on Goon Pod, the Goon Show podcast, talking to Tyler Adams about Peter and Sophia, the 1960 album by Peter Sellers and Sophia Loren, produced by George Martin, which is not without its problems, and we do talk about that, but this is the story of how I came to own that album in the first place. Well, I think you're already on the right lines. I mean, it's a bit kind of a how long have you got sort of question, because the really interesting thing is that, unlike most of the guests you've had so far on this, I was never really a fan of the goons in that sense of actually following what they did, following the other things they did and so on. They were kind of just an adjunct to other things that I was interested in. And that in itself is interesting because it shows what an enormous cultural impact they had, what an effect they had, that through osmosis really, through being interested in, say, the obvious one is George Martin, but Monty Python, the Beatles, all kinds of things like that, all seem to lead back to the goons. I mean, my father was a huge first-time goons fan. You know, he had all... Well, I've got them now. He had the singles. He had that LP where it's got Tales of Old Dartmoor and the re-recording of Dishonored. Also had a chromatic harmonica because he liked Max Geldray stuff, which I don't know how far he ever got with that. Again, I've now got that. I like to <laughs> think I can play it. I'm sure most people would disagree. But the thing was that it was quite difficult, weirdly, compared to a lot of other things, to actually get to experience the Goon Show unless you went hunting for it, unless you bought one of those BBC Records and Tapes albums with the two episodes with... It was always inconsistent whether to have the musical interludes or not from memory. I mean, I should know this because, you know, I'm in the process of writing a book about the BBC Records and Tapes albums, but that wasn't something if you were a child who just heard that the Goons existed and you'd seen Spike Milligan on a couple of things and Harry Seacombe on Highway and you'd seen the Pink Panther films and have maybe heard yeah. the name Michael Benteen just in the background. I mean, I remember being very aware of Spike Milligan, particularly he read the story, a John Antropos story on Jack and Ori called Help, I'm a Prisoner in the Toothpaste Factory in about 1979 oh, yeah. or 1980. I remember that being a really big thing because I was at the age where, you know, you would still ask the teacher for help with your spelling. And I remember a boy being asked by the primary school teacher, they're very unusual words to want to know how to spell prisoner and toothpaste factory. And he'd obviously be <laughs> writing in his school diary 
about Hellheimer Prison in the Toothpaste Factory. So I was aware of that. I was aware of Highway, which I was really enjoyed in the kind of surrealist kind of way, because what else was on television on Sunday? It was kind of things about, you know, news for farmers and all kinds of, not quite fire and brimstone, but very kind of straight-faced religious documentaries. In the middle of it, you've got Harry Seacombe comes out, stands in the grassy bit in the middle of a dual carriageway and sings to some <laughs> blacksmiths about how God made the trees. Michael Benteen, I do remember Potty Time being on. After that, he was kind of a bit quiet, really. I know he was on Radio 2 at one point with a sketch show, but he was... Mm, that was good. Well, I've later since, you know, re-listened to it. Yes, it was really good, but there were things like, I think I remember an episode of It's a Square World being repeated by the BBC, but it was on too late for me to watch. You know, people talked about those shows of his. You know, things like that you just never saw. The bits I was aware of, the goons, were things like, I remember seeing a clip from the Thames TV, is it Tales of Men's Shirts I did with John Cleese? Yes, On something and thinking, right. that doesn't look very exciting. <laughs> and there was a programme that used to be on BBC Two on the Sunday, again, you know, a rare bit of entertainment on the Sunday called Windmill, which was basically a clip show raiding the BBC's archives, presented by Chris Searle, where it'd have a theme each week, say, you know, music or the seasons or whatever. I can't remember what the theme was, but it had a clip for the Telegoons. And I remember oh, being yeah. intensely amused for all the wrong reasons that the Seagoon puppet looked exactly like Harry Seacombe. I think he was thrown off a moving train or something, which <laughs> doesn't actually sound very funny or suitable for children when you describe it like that. I was going to say, the Telegoons look like they'd been pulled out of a canal, those puppets, didn't they? <laughs> The two Ronnies, there was a kind of compilation, you know, they, well, they did endless compilation, you know, 27 million years of the two Ronnies, but there's one where they had the Phantom Raspberry Blow of Old London Town. I remember noticing Spike Milligan's name in that. And he was always good value on things like Blankety Blank and chat shows and so on. But this is the bit you're going to get letters about. I remember because I was a very, very big Python fan from a very young age, particularly the TV shows. But there was always that thing about people saying, oh, well, they just copied Q5, which was... Yeah. A- you know, a really difficult thing to get to see. I later found out there was a BBC video, The Best of Q, which I think was mainly from the later seasons, but I think there's a lot of it about was repeated in the late 80s, and then there was the Q Milligan compilations. I remember watching them and thinking, is that it? Is that really what I'm supposed to be reverential about? Now, I've since seen, you know, full editions of it. The early ones, Q5 in particular, I do think there is something remarkable about them. I think it, you know, the way it walks almost into, I would call it the margins of television itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The way it shows the rough edges. I mean, later on, the sketches are just, you know, Hitler and women with large breasts. And that <laughs> that's what most people are exposed to about Q. And I think on that evidence, his reputation isn't deserved. But the other thing is that I don't buy that thing at all. I mean, obviously, they were doing a similar thing. But Python did what they were doing in a much more accessible way. I mean, one thing I've been astonished to find out in recent years is a lot of their sketches, which just look like they're just funny ideas now or a funny send-up of a B. BBC2 discussion programme, they were actually referencing specific things like films and records and so on that were around at the time that have sort of been forgotten about now. I mean, one thing I was always puzzled by is, you know, the sketch The Bishop, you know, it's kind of a send-up of an ITC serial, but the audience have hysterics at one part yes. of the animated opening titles, and I could never figure out why that was, until I saw a 1969 ITV crime drama called Big Breadwinner Hog, which is a 
huge yes. thing at the time. Peter Egan as a kind of like mod who wants to make it bigger than London Underworld. It was a massive hit, but also it was incredibly violent. It was nearly taken off air a couple of times. And the opening titles of The Bishop directly parody the opening titles of that. They were doing very similar sketches. You know, in Do Not Adjust Your Set, the last 1948 show, the stuff they wrote for David Frost and so on. And that was before Q5. What were they copying in that? A goon reel? Yeah. <laughs> so, Tim, you've, you've come on today and I asked you, obviously, what you wanted to cover, what you wanted to use as a jumping off point. And you asked to talk about the 1960 LP, Peter and Sophia, uh, the collaboration with Peter Sellers and Sophia Loren off the back of the Millionaire S film, produced by George Martin. What was the reason that that sort of jumped out at you as what you wanted to talk about? Well, a number of reasons. I mean, I've always loved this album. I'll come back to when I first got it in a minute. But there's the whole George Martin angle of it. It's the fact that it's probably, I would wager, I mean, I've not got access to any sort of details like this. I would hazard a guess, knowing what I do about, you know, the popular culture at the time, the way the industry worked, it probably sold the best out of all of his albums. And yet it's the most forgotten. It doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Mm. I was astonished by. Mm. And the other thing is that it's a difficult album to talk about these days because it does some things very, very right and does some things very, very wrong. Mm. And it's interesting to, to weigh up that balance, really. So when did you first come across this album? Well, I first got it quite a bit later than I got the other Peter Sellers albums. And also I got the Benteen albums by that point as well. And that what's that dreadful one with Spike Milligan and the other bloke doing comedy folk songs between oh. Spike doing his adult poems, which... Oh, I like I, that. I really don't like that. That's, um, that's uh, Spike and Jeremy Taylor at Cambridge. That's it, yeah. I'm not... I'm not mad on that one <laughs> and I also have a Reader's Digest Harry Seacombe box set which I bought because it's kind of like collections of his you know his operatic readings and so on but the covers that they give to individual discs are you know there's one of the great artists or something and he's you know got a palette and a yes. stuck on beard and so on it's <laughs> hilarious I've been buying all of these 60s soundtrack comedy records and so on like lesser known pop records and so on for a while because in those days you could still get things quite easily Mm. in charity shops and so on I'd always been put off Peter and Sophia by goodness gracious me which I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute which even as a small child I wasn't that comfortable with but I eventually got it because I became more aware of the goons kind of in my late teens when I think there was something on Radio 4 in about 1990 called Spike's Pick of the Goons where it was Mm -hmm. he would do a little introduction to them and then they play it was always the more prominent episodes and I remember as well that I got any book there was out of the library that was in the film and TV section and read it no matter what it was about because yep. you know again yep. there was less access to this stuff in those days one of the things I got out was the Goon Show Companion which mm. even though I say you know I wasn't that interested in the Goons per se that was a fascinating book the way it was put together you know it, it kind of really influenced me a lot I remember having hysterics and things like some of the episode titles like Foiled by President Fred which I still think yeah. is a superb title <laughs> <laughs> and Peter and Sophia I got eventually when it will have been when I was home for Christmas after my first term at university. I can't remember if it was Radio 2 or Radio 4, but in the week before Christmas, something was cancelled that should have been on late at night. And they put Spike's Pick of the Goons on instead. And I remember listening to a couple of them and really, really having hysterics in Napoleon's piano in particular. And then when everything reopened after Christmas, I was in, funnily enough, a very large Oxfam adjacent to Penny Lane, which is the whole George Martin link. I hadn't thought about that 
that till now. But I saw Peter and Sophia in there and thought, do you know what? I'll give that a go. And just before we go, I also do a podcast about the Marvel Cinematic Universe called It's Good Except It Sucks. And here are a couple of guests from this compilation appearing on it. First Emma on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, then Anna on Spider-Man Homecoming. There is a lot of 80s video game stuff in this, isn't there? Because at one point he's fighting... When I say he, I mean Star-Lord, is fighting his dad and he turns into Pac-Man. Yes! <laughs> which was kind of bizarre. But, I mean, he had pre-shadowed it because he said he was going to build a statue of Pac-Man. And there's also, in retaliation, he turns into David Hasselhoff, or rather Zardu Hasselfrau, as Gamora calls him, <laughs> in that beautiful scene about he had a magic boat. You told me that story and I loved it. And then they start arguing about Cheers, even though she's never seen Cheers. He's never seen Cheers, but she does the arguing anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that they always go for Cheers in America, whereas here we would almost certainly have used Moonlighting as the example of that. Yeah, Moonlighting was the classic. They fucked it up by getting them together. But I don't think they at all fucked it up by getting those two together in this. No, because they did it slowly, didn't they? It was a, Yeah, and again, I mean, the question would be... What happens in film three? But yeah, it's interesting how, like you say, it brings in that modern aspect of being a young person within that setting. And that, you know, yes, this is a different world in many ways, but equally it's the same world that we all have lived through. And we've all been to school and we've all been in that kind of environment. And that, yeah, that kind of cast of characters that you get in any school, and any kind of group of friends. It was lovely, actually. I enjoyed that. I spotted, you know, for me, a lot of references to previous high school movies, particularly John Hughes films from the 80s. You know, it used a lot of those kind of uh, traditional tropes the high school film but I think it used them really well and kind of interspersed that with his you know his other life and his, his kind of way of, you know I think they brought the two together quite well you know it could have been a massive clash between that world and, and him you know jumping off rooftops and, and doing his thing actually I think it, they paced it well in terms of having the two because he is a, a double character in that way you, you can kind of play it that way and I enjoyed those references to, to your typical high school film you know you had your detention session you had your high school party that he wasn't invited to originally and you know you're trying to get into the party you had you know the build up to a big event which was obviously the homecoming you know kind of dance at the end of term I think they did that really well and kind of bringing those in but not self-reverentially they kind of actually it worked really well well hopefully you enjoyed that collection of highlights from Lux and Familiar don't forget you can find the full versions of all of the shows and the full version of the chat about Peter and Sophia at timworthington.org while you're there why not help support Lux and Familiar by buying one of my books or alternately if you're just feeling generous why not buy me a coffee there's a link for that too and i promise not to share any with any colorado peoples they were the chickeniest thing ever so a bit like if you were to eat a spoonful of neat bachelor's chicken copper soup what do dry. You, if you were to eat it <laughs> so when when we've all done that when we've all taken a spoonful of dry copper soup powder it was sort of on a par with that but more so Higher Than The Sun by Tim Worthington The Story of Bloodless by My Bloody Valentine Fuckface Alpha by Saint Etienne Screamer Delicate by Primal Scream Bandwagon S by Teenage Fan Club and How Creation Records Took On The World and Nearly Won Find out more at timworthington.org <laughs>